election and reprobation. Why are you here this morning? I don't mean you set the alarm and decided to get up and come. I don't mean a friend asked you. I don't mean you heard about it and you decided to come. I mean, why are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Behind the question of someone talking to you about the Bible and the gospel message, behind the question of your pondering what that message was, behind the question of the kind of temperament and personality and family and background and circumstances that you were born into, behind that question, why? Why are you here? Why are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And the topic of election, the topic of election is where the ultimate answer, at least that I think the Bible is teaching, the ultimate answer is not because of anything in you or in me, but simply because God decided to set his love on you and choose you to be his. That's, that's the summary of where we're going. The ultimate, 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 back as far as you can get behind the why and the why and the why, the ultimate eternal answer for why you are here this morning is that before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Individually, personally, he decided to make you his own. Not because of anything good in you or in me. And that makes me say, it wasn't because I had a tendency to believe that God chose me. It wasn't because I was a nice guy when I was a kid. It wasn't because of anything in me, anything meritorious in me, but just because God chose me, and beyond that there is no more answer. Now that's where I'm going. I have to say, in the interest of fairness this morning, that not everybody in the Christian world believes this. There is another view that I'll talk about, and that is that the reason you became a Christian is that you had in you something that was an inclination to believe. And that's the final answer, and I'll respect that position, but I won't agree with it. So, you ready? Election and reprobation. Election being choosing people to be Christians. Reprobation meaning passing over other people and not choosing them. Why did God choose us? When did God choose us? Are some not chosen? That's election and reprobation. Definition of election. How many? Do, anybody need an outline? Everybody have an outline? Oh, in the back row over here, Clyde. We need some. Bob's getting some made. Okay, Clyde has a few more here, and you might share a few. Um, 
I've got to tell you, we were at the Truth Project Friday evening and then all day Saturday, and um, uh, this isn't the best outline I ever made. <laughs> it's kind of just a brief one. It doesn't have all the verses in. I hope to do better than that next week, maybe with a couple of pages and all the verses. But we'll work with this anyway. I just decided, 9.45, I'm quitting. That was last night. Okay, here we go. Definition, election, an act of God. Before creation, in which he chooses some people to be saved, not, not on account of any foreseen merit in them. doesn't look forward and see there's something good about you that he wants to choose. Do you like that? No, <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> at first, I don't like that at all. But, but there's, but I'll tell you, there's deep, there's humility that comes with that, and there's incredible thankfulness that comes with that, too. Wasn't anything good in me, but you chose me anyway, God? I'm thankful to you. And then there's a lot good in you that he likes and delights in and is pleased with now, so I don't want to forget that. But, but hold on, keep that for later. Okay, he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Well, that's how we'll define election. Note, the word predestination technically is used to refer to both election and reprobation by, by people who teach theology and write about theology. Uh, but often predestination is used as a synonym for election. So when we're talking, if you want to talk about election, fine. If you want to talk about predestination, I don't mind. You can use either word. In our ordinary conversation, they're going to mean about the same thing. All right. Predestination as shorthand for predestined to be saved. This is the beginning also of a 10-part series, it'll probably take us 20 weeks, a 10-part series on the order of salvation, or in Latin, ordo salutis, ordo salutis. That means the sequence of things that happen to you when you become a Christian. And it's a whole complex of things, and we're going to take the next, I suppose, the next 20 weeks to talk about these 10 things. But uh, election is the first one. That's before the foundation of the world. The gospel call is that's when you heard the gospel message in the four spiritual laws or a Billy Graham crusade or a message on television or a tract or a friend sharing the gospel with you at a camp or parents talking to you. That's the gospel call. It comes through the word of God. Regeneration is being born again. God awakens new spiritual life within us so we are able to respond in faith. Conversion has to do with faith and repentance. Our decision to trust in Christ for salvation and simultaneously to turn from sin Justification follows on our initial saving faith. God declares us to be legally righteous before him, not guilty for all eternity, on the basis of the merits of Christ's obedience, his perfect life of obedience and his death and resurrection. Adoption. In addition to becoming not guilty, we become a member of God's family. We become his sons and daughters. Sanctification. That's God working progressive holiness in us, in our lives, so that we become more and more like Christ. It starts at the moment of conversion. It continues throughout life. And it won't even be finished at death as far as our bodies, but it'll be when our bodies are raised from the dead, then it will be completed in us. And then perseverance is remaining a Christian. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? Can people fall away? Or will you stay a Christian for your whole life? Perseverance. And then death, what happens to believers when they die? And then uh, uh, glorification is when Christ comes back, we get a resurrection body. So 10 things that happen to us in the order of salvation or applying salvation to us. Very complex, very rich, 
very rich set of blessings that God gives to us. So here we start before the foundation of the world with the question of election. Does the New Testament... Oh, Bob has more outlines. Anybody need an outline now? Or we... Yeah, a few over here, Bob, and then I think people may have shared. Okay. Does the New Testament teach predestination or election? What I want to do first is just say, let's look at a bunch of verses in the New Testament to see what the New Testament says about this. I'll kind of comment on each verse as we go along, but we're basically doing an overview to say there are quite a few verses here that speak about this. Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, this is Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel in, uh, I think it's Lystra, I'd have to look. It's one of those Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. It's the, uh, on his first missionary journey. It's those towns that he went to. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And look at this, just in passing. The author of Acts, Luke, says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That was 237, actually. I'm kidding. (laughs) We don't know how many. But how many believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. Just in passing, Luke has the... Luke, through the book of Acts, he has this strong sense of the Lord building his church and the Lord's supervision over the spread of the gospel to the, uh, through the whole Mediterranean world. And this is just one phrase that reflects Luke's consciousness of this is God's work. How many believed? Well, just what you would expect. As many as were appointed to eternal life, that's how many believed. Ephesians 1, 4-6, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus Even as he, that's God the Father, he chose us in him, that's Jesus Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When? Before the foundation of the world, God chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So there's another... There's to holiness, there's to adoption as his children, which is different ways of talking about the blessings of salvation. Paul says, to those Christians to whom he is writing, God chose us. Now there are some people who say, oh, that means God just chose a group of people without specifying individuals. But let me tell you, if God chooses a group, there have to be individuals in it. When Paul says he chose us, he means himself, he means the church that he's writing to, so God chose us. I think that means he's pointing to a choice of individual persons. When? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's verse 28. Many of us memorize that. That's one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. But look at Paul's reason for it. Here's four, Greek gar, tells you the reason. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Note what's happening. Paul says a whole lot of things happened to people. They were foreknown by God. They were predestined. And then they were called, that's that gospel call that we talked about. And then they were justified, that's our sins being forgiven. 
And then, speaking of the future with certainty, as the prophets sometimes do, using a past tense, those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is, looking to the future as if it's already certain and attained. So, um, but, but now, I want, you to, I want you to see why Paul reassures believers that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul is, is writing here in the first century A.D., and he's saying, now think about your life. Before the foundation of the world, God foreknew you and predestined you. What's going on here, Trent? I'm losing this. Is this me? God foreknew you and predestined you. Okay? Okay. Um, before the foundation of the world. So you go way back to be eternity past. Did God have good or evil in mind for you? Good, okay. Far back as you can think, you had good. And then recently, like three years ago, when you heard the gospel and believed it, he called you. Let, let you hear the gospel message in a powerful way. Did he have good or evil in mind for you when he called you? Good, okay. And then when he called you effectively, so you believed, he justified you. That was like, say, example, three years ago. When he justified you, did he have good or evil in mind for you? Good, okay. Now go as far as you can think way out into the future where Christ is coming back. He's going to glorify you. He's going to give you a perfect resurrection body that's not aging, sick, weak anymore, but live forever, be perfect, glorify. When you look way into the future, did he have good or evil in mind for you? Good, okay. So way back in eternity past, good. Recent past, good. Eternity future, good. What do you think about today? <laughs> Is it going to be good? See, Paul uses predestination to say, eternity past to eternity future, God's got good in mind for you. And taking his clue from that, he says, we're beginning to see a pattern here. In fact, God always has had good in mind for you, and that means that we can be sure that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Things happen yesterday, today, and tomorrow as well. Because that's always God's purpose. Are you, make, are you understanding? The reason for Romans 8, 28 is predestination and God's plan that those whom he predestined, he's going to glorify. He's going to bring them all the way through to the end to get all those blessings. Got it? Not neat? Make you feel more comfortable about today? What does God have in mind for you today? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Romans 9, 11 to 13. Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the elder will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here, here... Um, It's Abraham, it's, uh, I'm thinking, who, who's Abraham? Abraham, Isaac, who's Isaac's wife? It's Rebecca, it's Rebecca, okay. Sorry, don't tell anybody that I couldn't write. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. Why? 
when they were not yet born, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue. God had chosen the younger, Jacob, whose name became Israel, to be the one who would be the father of the nation of Israel. So, again, Paul, in talking about this question of God's choice of individuals, looks back to God's purpose, ultimately. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. Thessalonica, modern Saloniki, is in the northern part of Greece. Paul came there and he preached the gospel. There was a good response. A number of people believed, quite a few people believed, a church was founded there. Paul left, and later he wrote back to them. It's quite a joyful relationship that he has with the church at Thessalonica. And then when he writes to them, Right in the beginning of his first letter to them, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Wow! What? He said, I know that you're predestined to be saved. How can you know that, Paul? Well, when I preached, you responded. Watch. We know that God has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, not in words that fell to the ground, empty words that didn't have any power, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He began to preach and they began to weep because they were repenting from their sins. They, were, they began to say, how can we be saved? Tell us. And they, and they believed and they, and they had full conviction of faith. So, so Paul's saying, when people respond, they become believers. Then he says, aha, I see God has chosen you because you responded. Isn't that interesting? Or 1 Timothy 5.21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of what kind of angels? The, the elect. elect angels. God created, I don't know, Hundreds of thousands, millions of angels. Some sinned, some didn't. Paul's saying the ones that didn't were elect. Isn't that interesting? It's just one of those statements in passing again. But he has this sense that God's purpose is being worked out here. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging. So, um, even in the angelic world, apparently, there is predestination or election. Some will be saved and some will not. First Peter, I'm just moving through the New Testament. First Peter 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he names these provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Modern Turkey. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So, Peter's writing to five, well, four different provinces with five names, because one was a combination name. And in these regions, in uh, ancient Asia Minor, in these regions, Paul writes to all the, probably hundreds of churches at that time, and he says, I'm writing to those who are elect, or chosen, exiles of the dispersion, your exiles, that is, you're away from your heavenly home, and you're scattered throughout the world. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God knew you ahead of time, and he has elect, uh, elected you. Or 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. Again, Peter says, God chose you. Revelation 13, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, over all who dwell on the earth, will, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that's the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world 
in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Everyone whose name has been not... When? Way back over here. Eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Who will worship the beast? People whose name wasn't written eternally in the book of life. The book of life, a way of speaking of God deciding individual people to be saved. Now, some translations, including the King James Version, do this verse differently. They say, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. They make before the foundation of the world modify the word slain. And so you get the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I have two problems with that. One is, Jesus didn't die until he came into the world. So to say he was slain before the foundation of the world, theologically, it doesn't compute. He couldn't die before he was born. He couldn't die in eternity past. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange way of, of reading this. The Greek can, can bear with me a minute, um, the Greek can go either way. And they worshipped and all worshipped, though all those dwelling on the earth worshipped, of whom not was written the name of him in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. But this phrase, prepositional phrase, from the foundation of the world in Greek, apokataboles kosmu, that can modify either slain or written, either one. And it just, and, and it, there's no um, definite answer from Greek grammar, but I think there is a definite answer from another verse, because this phrase, from the foundation of the world, apa, kataboles, kosmu in Greek, here it is again in Greek in Revelation 17, 8, apa, kataboles, kosmu, from the foundation of the world, and in that verse in Revelation, it's the only other place that phrase occurs in Revelation, Maybe the only place that, I don't know, it's the only other place that occurs in Revelation anyway. It clearly has to do with predestination. So here we go, Revelation 17, 8. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. There's nothing here about the lamb being slain. It's not in the verse. Are you following with me? This verse clearly talks about names being written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Actually... Uh, I don't know why the English is different. The English should be the same. Before the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world, the Greek is the same. We probably need to modify that, but, but it is the same. And I think that decides the question that here, this means names written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. Are, are you with me? So who worshipped the beast? Everybody except those whom God had chosen basically is what it's saying. Okay, that's a lot of verses. That's just kind of an overview. But it's there throughout the New Testament. Now, everybody who's hearing this is thinking, oh, but wait a minute, don't we have a choice? Don't we have a choice? Don't we have a choice? Yes. (laughs) How do you put those together? Wait. Okay. But I just want to say, the New Testament has a strong set of passages throughout many, many parts of the New Testament on the fact that those who believe are those whom God had chosen. How does the New Testament present this? Not as a philosophical puzzle 
for people to get worried and troubled and frustrated about, although I know that can happen, and it's all right to think about it and question and try to work it together with what else we know. But the New Testament always presents this as a very positive thing. It presents this as a comfort, for instance, in Romans 8, because God foreknew you and predestined you, all things are going to work together for good. Oh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> are you, are, you see, it's, it's, it's meant as a comfort. God has always had good for you. What about those who didn't, God didn't choose? Paul's not talking about that at the moment. He's talking about you. We can talk about that later, but focus on you for a minute. Doesn't that make you thankful that God chose you? And the New Testament presents predestination as a reason to praise God. Ephesians 1, 5 to 6, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. There is something, there, there should be something in us that we talk about this. I'm a believer because God set his love on me. There's something in us that just should make us immensely thankful and, and wanting to praise God for what he has done. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, we give thanks to God always for all of you, for we know that he's chosen you. Paul's saying, thank you for these believers. I think we should be saying, thank you, Lord, for each other. Thank you for Mike and Ev. Thank you for Ann and John. Thank you, Lord, uh, for John and Kathy. Thank you because you chose them, and now we can be friends. We give thanks to God for you. Lord, it's your doing. 2 Thessalonians 2. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's giving thanks, and ultimately it, it uh, comes, you come into the experience of the glory of Jesus Christ, and he will be praised for that. So we're giving thanks and praise to God. Third, and this is very important, predestination is viewed as an encouragement to evangelism. Paul, who had all these verses about predestination, looking back on his life, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, when he knows he's going to die very soon, he's looking back on his ministry and all the suffering he has endured, and he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul, why did you go to city after city where you were put in prison, where you were flogged, where you were beaten with rods, this horrible kind of punishment in the Roman, where you were stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead, where you were shipwrecked? You talked about many, a sleepless night and hunger and thirst. Why did you go through all that hardship, Paul? If God had chosen people to be saved, you didn't have to do anything, did you? Why are you so hard on yourself? If God had chosen them, they would have been saved anyway, right? Nope. Wrong. Because God knew, because Paul knew <clears throat> if God had chosen believers in Thessalonica or in Philippi or Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all those cities he was going through, Corinth, if God had chosen believers in those cities to be saved, he would save them through means. He would save them through people. He would save them through people who would bring the gospel to them. 
And so Paul thought, okay. I'm not sure if God has chosen anybody in Corinth or not. But I'm going to preach and find out. And then he starts, in, starts experiencing persecution. Does he give up? No, he prays and the Lord says, don't be discouraged. Speak, don't be silent. I have many people in this city. Paul doesn't say, oh, you've got a lot of chosen here, I'll go. I'll, I'll, you've taken care of it, God. No, he says, therefore he stayed a year and six months among them. That is, Paul, when he thinks God has chosen people, but I don't know who they are, he said, I'll go to that city and I'll preach so that God will bring people to himself through my preaching. Because probably when he chose them, he chose also that my preaching would save them. It's, it's kind of, too, am I making sense here? So I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Hardship, suffering, persecution, being stoned so that people think you're dead. Just so these people that God has chosen would be saved. <laughs> God's sovereignty, human responsibility, both true. Okay, now I'll stop there. For a minute before we go on. Questions. Daryl has a microphone. E.G. and then John. So, Just hold on a second. Okay, so uh, where Paul preached, those who were predestined found salvation. What about those that were predestined in the other cities where he didn't preach and where, in fact, no one has preached? What happens to all these countries where they've never heard the word? Are there there or are there not predestined people in those countries? The reason why from day one the Christian church has been missionary-minded is that people come to faith through human preaching of the gospel. And so Paul is convinced that the means God uses to save predestined people is his preaching. I understand that. But what about the people that he didn't go to and never heard the word? I think ultimately, E.G., then, I mean, ultimately... I think we have to say those are ones whom God has passed over and not chosen for salvation. Hold on, hold on just a second. So that's saying that the only predestined people are where the word is being preached. So E.G. is saying, so is that saying that the only predestined people are is are where the word is being preached. Looking at the past, I think that's what the New Testament would lead me to say, with two qualifications. One, God does sometimes use unusual means. And we hear stories of people through dreams coming to trust in Christ. But they're often dreams about Christ, and then someone comes into their village and brings them the Jesus film or the story about Christ. So that I'm 
I'm not sure about that, but the the primary emphasis of the New Testament is they can't hear without a preacher and they can't preach unless someone is sent. And, and uh, so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, but looking toward the future, is anybody predestined to be saved in this square block of Scottsdale? Just take any random block from the map. Well, we don't know yet, but if we go and share the gospel, we'll start finding out. So it's a motive for evangelism. Well, I understand that, yeah. but it still bears the question. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of people in the world yeah. that have never heard yeah. about salvation. Yeah. All and these missionary organizations continually yeah. talk about people that don't even have the word in their language. Yeah. And that, that has motivated missions throughout the world and still does, and it should be a great concern for us because God works through us to bring chosen people to himself. I, there's something in me that says, I wish I could give an easier answer, but then there's also something in me that says, I've got to re report the teaching of the word of God as, as best I see it and be honest with it. John? Okay, well, now wait a minute. I had John here second. I want to call on, and then I'll come over there. Yes, I just I said E.G. and then John, so. Can I ask you about a verse that you haven't talked about yet? But yeah. always seems to come up in this, yeah. and, I, and I'm just curious. In uh, John 17, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, yep. uh, verse uh, 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. What verse? Uh, six. Yep. Out of this world, they were yours, and you gave them to me. Does he talk? I've heard it two ways from uh, different theologians that yep. talk about. He's talking about the disciples, and then all of us, and or all of us, the people that. Yep. Well, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I think that probably means all those who had come to him and believed in him, the ones whom. God gave to Christ at that time, but maybe more broadly, even through his ministry, manifesting his name to all of us, those whom God gave him out of the world. Um, I'm not sure. He, he talks also here about having other sheep not of this fold, but I think that's the Gentiles, like you and me, who aren't Jewish by origin. So I don't know if that answers it, John. But. Well, he wasn't just talking about the disciples then. Not well... I manifest your name of the people whom you gave me out of the world. Um, I'd have to look more at the context, but I think it's those who would believe generally. Okay. okay. Now, there was somebody over here. Yes. Mary. What, uh, Mar Mary. Rosemary. Rosemary, yeah. On the first uh, discussion, I had always been informed that as long as they had the Bible, the word, that that you know, we send many Bibles out all yep. over the world yep. without people. Yep. Do you feel that? Sure. People can be read. People can be people can be saved through reading the Bible apart from human agency. But it took people to print it and carry it and distribute it. So. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Now I heard Pammy over here a minute ago. I think. Well, I just. I, Go ahead. About dreams, um, I 
I have heard exciting stories from missionaries, yep. one in particular about uh, the Lord giving a dream to a native yep. and telling him that he would reveal his name to him because mm -hmm. this native sought to know the yep. name of God. Yep. And and a missionary uh, at the exact same time did it. And yep. so I just think it's exciting that we 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 can't, you know, the the Lord has great love for all those lost people as yep. well. And it isn't, he's not a bad God that has done some to hell and some elect, but us in our human minds kind of think of it in that way. But it is that the, the potter um, and he makes the vessels in one way for honorable use and in, in another way. So, and I want to keep us with this perspective that nobody deserves salvation. Amen. So if there's one person here at Scottsdale Bible Church this morning, it's God's grace. It's more than we deserve. So, okay, let's take a couple more. Way in the very back row, take a couple more, and then uh, they'll go on. Maybe it'll clear up some of the questions. Um, Dr. Gruden, my question is, does uh, like for the first question that was originally posed, yeah. um, does Romans 2... Verses 12 through 16 address that question. Yeah, can I just maybe read a verse or two from that and say something about it? I'm going to say, what's your name? Ron? Ron? Brian. Brian, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot your last name. Erwin, yeah, because I know your folks. Okay. Um, Romans 2 is going to say people can know that God exists and they can know his moral law apart from the Bible, but they can't know how to be saved. So you can know that there is a God and that you haven't met his standards, but that doesn't tell you the answer. You're a sinner, but how do you solve the problem? So let's read that, Romans 2, 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about the written law in God's word. Now, I'll skip to verse 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law, <clears throat> they don't have the Mosaic law, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So I think what's happening is that uh, people, uh, even who don't have God's word, they know they've done wrong. And so they try to appease God somehow, and they have all these tribal religions with sacrifices or hurting themselves or all sorts of uh, self-abasement uh, things and all sorts of rituals, but those don't solve the problem because only Jesus dying for our sins can solve the problem. So I think that's what that says. Yeah, good, that's helpful. Okay, let me go. I haven't gone way over here. Oh, boy. Oh, somebody has a microphone, so you <laughs> you got the microphone. What can I say? Thank you. Doctor, on, about the Lamb's Book of Life, it refers several places that I will not blot your name out. Yep. Is there a possibility that the Lamb's Book of Life is written with everybody's name that's born, and then when you pass through life and accept Christ, your name is not blotted out? But it is blotted out if you're not one that accepts or has been elected? Well, interesting question. I don't think so, and I didn't ask your name. Lauren. Lauren, okay. And, and, and I, I'm just going to also pause for a second. To all of you in this class, I'm Wayne. To people at Phoenix Seminary, I am Dr. Grudem. But that's just kind of the way seminaries go. 
That's just, okay, but I'm happy for you to call me Wayne in this class. Now, if you're a Phoenix Seminary student in this class, you choose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care either way. Thanks, well, thanks Wayne. Okay, you're welcome, Lord. Okay. Um, um, it looks like there are people whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. And here again, those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So it looks like there are people who haven't had their names written. Okay. I was just thinking regarding that I will not blot their names out. That's assurance, but that's you and me if we're believers. If saying, it's there, it's there. It's there, it's there. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Let's do one more. Um, I don't care where. Okay, o over here. Yeah. Uh, Jason. Jason. Yeah. Um, just in regards to John 17, um, verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Through what, their uh, what verse? Verse 20. John 17, 20. Yep. Um, I think the beginning of chapter 17, he's praying for his disciples. Yes. But verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, yep. but also for those who will believe. Yep. Can you comment on that? Is that a different group of people? Oh, I think that's the Gentile. Well, all who will believe. I think that means all of us, everybody after the disciples. But does that have an implication for verse 6? Are you saying, might the yeah. verse 6 mean? Two different I, Jason, I can't decide. You might be right. I, I'd have to take some minutes and look at the whole context. So I can't do it right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But with regard to John's question... Um, I could go either way on that. I'm not sure. Let's go on. <clears throat> now, once we say, oh, there are all these verses on predestination or election, how does, the, how does the New Testament present it as a comfort, as a reason to praise God, as an encouragement to evangelism? Now, can we correct some misunderstandings? First, election or predestination is not fatalistic or mechanistic. I don't want to be pushed into a philosophical box that says, oh, this is philosophical determinism, <clears throat> because... That doesn't take into account the reality of our human personhood and human personality. It's somehow different from that. For instance, we have a picture in Ezekiel 33 of God's attitude toward those who will not be saved. Say to them, Ezekiel 33:11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Here is God's heart toward every single human being saying, my desire, thinking about you individually, my, my desire for you, what will give me joy is with you if you would believe. That is, God doesn't enjoy, punish people for sin. And with regard to us, it wasn't just impersonal, kind of uh, a lottery or a big, um, you know, one of these big jars or baskets that spits out a lottery marble in heaven, and all of a sudden the lottery marble said, oh, there's Robbie. Okay, well, okay. It, it wasn't that. It was personal. In love, he predestined us through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of will. God said, there's Robbie. <laughs> oh, no, he's not worth loving, but I'm going to love him anyway. <laughs> so it isn't just impersonal, mechanistic. It's I'm going to set my love on you. And, uh, and so sorrow with the condemnation of the wicked, love in the salvation of the believers. Jesus' attitude, pleading, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, earnestly inviting people to come. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? 
Because he has not been predestined. Is that what it says? No. It says when there's blame for people who haven't believed, it says always the, 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 the blame, the responsibility is on the people who haven't believed. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. <clears throat> now, there's mystery here. How that can be that God chose some, he didn't choose others, and yet when it comes to people hearing the gospel and rejecting it and not believing, the blame is always on them. And you say, how can that be fair? And ultimately, I have to say, there's mystery here that I don't know, but I'm trying to be faithful to what God is saying in his word. Romans 10, 14, 17. <clears throat> how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There's personal evangelism here. People sharing the gospel one with another. It's not just mechanism. Lottery ball falls out. It says Robbie Kuhlman. Robbie's safe. It's no individual people come and speak in love to Robbie, and he comes to faith. So it's personal. And here again, the intensity, the personal nature of the invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. This is right at the end of the whole Bible. Revelation 22:17. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So there's God's earnest invitation. Well, if God so delights in salvation, why didn't he then save everybody? And if we were making up the Bible on our own, maybe we'd make it up that way. Say, okay, ultimately everybody's going to be saved. And there's something in us just because we love other people that makes us, that, that, we feel the tongue of that argument. We feel, well, what? why wouldn't we want everybody to be saved? And, and what I'm saying from these verses is, in God himself, there is, there is this, when, when, when picturing the individual, there's this longing, why will you die? Turn, turn. But then why isn't everybody saved? Because there's something else in God, and that is, above all of that, his wisdom in manifesting his glory, in his infinite wisdom, in manifesting his glory through the history of the world, and his glory will be manifested not only in the salvation of believers, but also in his holiness and justice and wrath being manifested against unbelievers who have sinned deeply against him and whose sins are worthy of eternal death. It's hard. It's very hard. It's hard for me to say. It's hard for us to hear. But I want us just then to rest in the greatness and the sovereignty and the majesty of God, saying, this is his plan. But it's not impersonal. It's not a machine. It's not blind faith. It's a personal God. And it's individual people. Then, number two, and here's a technical argument It's going to take me about five minutes to get into, and then I think we're going to have to end for this time. There is an alternative position to what I'm presenting, and it's called an Arminian, A-R-M-I-N-I-A-N position, not Armenian. Armenian is people who came from Armenia in, in, in East Asia. Uh, no, in, uh, Armenia is kind of between the former Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe. Is Armenia part of Eastern Europe? I don't I think it's in, I think it's north of Turkey. If I'm, okay, but it's not Armenians. 
Do we have anybody of Armenian descent in here? Your name ends in I-A-N, if it is. No? Okay, well. Um, oh, um, 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 well, anyway. Um, our classic Ar Arminian position after a Dutch theologian named Jacob Arminius, 1560-1609, a classic Arminian position would say, Wayne, I disagree with you. They would say, God looks into the future and he sees who will believe and who will not. So God, way back here in eternity past, he looks forward and he sees, aha, Robbie Kuhlman has a tendency to believe in his heart, therefore I'll choose him. Okay? He's kind of a likable guy anyway, therefore I'll... So, okay, that's, I don't mean to caricature, I just want to keep you awake. So, God looks in the future, sees who will believe, who will not. If he sees that a person will come to faith, he will predestine that person to be saved. Thus, the ultimate reason for election is the person's own decision to believe or not. And this is kind of an instinctive position. I mean, when we first become a Christian, we haven't thought about the Bible very much. We, we probably would adopt that position instinctively. It just kind of seems right, doesn't it? The reason is really ultimately whether we'll believe or not, not God's uh, choice. And here is the way that position would be supported. <clears throat> it would be supported from Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, uh, we know that all things work together for good. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So Jacob Arminius and those Arminian friends of his today would say to me, Wayne, yeah, okay, I agree God looked forward and he chose that person, but he chose that person because he foreknew that they would have faith. You following the argument? Foreknowledge is foreknowledge that a person would come to faith. <clears throat> and so they say, I believe in predestination, but it's only based on knowing that the person would have faith. So the ultimate reason I'm here this morning is because I had something in me that would choose to come to Christ. It's a different answer than God's choice, okay? But my answer to that is, I don't think that's what this verse is teaching. I think this verse looks more like a personal relationship foreknowledge, a knowledge of persons, a saving knowledge of persons, not of the fact that they would believe. So I think it is those whom, those people whom God foreknew, that is, whom God thought of, I know you as my own. I know you in a saving relationship from before the beginning of the world. Not, oh, I see that you were going to have faith. It's not that. This verse looks more like personal relationship foreknowledge, knowledge of persons, not the fact they would believe. Because when the Bible talks about God knowing people <clears throat> or to be known by God, it seems to mean to be known in a personal saving relationship. 1 Corinthians 8.3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That means God knows you personally. Galatians 4.9, now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, that means you're saved. So I think that's what that means. Those whom he foreknew, that is, he thought of in saving relationship. It's just a different interpretation of that verse. I don't think it says he foreknew that they would be saved or he foreknew that they would believe. Another reason why I think that is that the Bible never really goes back to our faith as the reason God chose us. It's just God's purpose. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, it's always God's purpose. Romans 11, 5 to 6, there's a present time, a present time, a remnant chosen by grace. If it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. And you see, I think works would include 
any merit that God would foresee in me, like I would have an inclination to have faith or something like that. <clears throat> Why did he predestine us? He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ because he saw that we would believe? No, it's according to the purpose of his will. It all goes back to God himself and his choice, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. It's ultimately God's purpose that's always pointed to. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Ephesians 1, 5 to 6. The other reason I don't agree with this Arminian position is it doesn't seem to me to fit with the whole emphasis in the Bible on ultimately God deserving the praise for everything. Election based on something good in us, that is our faith or our inclination to believe, would be the beginning of salvation by merit. But no, it's he predestined us according to the purpose of his will not because of something good in us. And the other thing, kind of in a philosophical realm, I would answer <clears throat> back to people who say predestination was based on foreknowledge of who would believe. It still doesn't answer the problem. It still doesn't get this kind of absolutely free choice that, <clears throat> that an Arminian view would want. Predestination based on foreknowledge doesn't give people free choice in the sense that they could do something else because if God looks into the future and he sees that Robbie is going... Excuse me, Robbie, for using you, but I know you're on my side on this anyways. <clears throat> you don't mind being used as... If God looks into the future and sees on June 27th, 19... About what year were you saved? Okay, on June 27, 1975, I see that Robbie Kuhlman is going, to be, is going to have faith. If God looks into the future and sees it, then it's going to happen. How can Robbie have a free choice then? If God sees that it's going to happen, then it's absolutely certain that he'll believe. So how can he be free in the Armenian sense, even in this view? But then, what, what made him believe? If God knows it's going to happen, what made him believe? It can't be God. Then you're back to fate, something like that. And that isn't too, I'd rather have God. <laughs> so my conclusion is, and this is my judgment on these verses, but I, I tell you there's this other view, and it's, it's, it's held by evangelical believers. But my conclusion is that an election is unconditional. That's it, based on God's sovereign choice, not on any conditions that he foresees us in us. He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. That's how far I thought I'd get today. Oh, I am not going to get through this without giving you lots of chance to talk and interact. But I kind of got to that 10-minute unit, and now we're at the end of time, and I gave up singing a hymn last week, so I'm going to sing him this week. So we keep that habit, too, or Gene Moore is going to be upset with me. Where are you, Gene? I don't know. Yep, right there. Okay. He keeps affirming to me we should sing. So I'll tell you what. Um, when I was reflecting on this last night, just the amazement, it wasn't for anything good in me, but just, just out of God's sovereign choice that he chose me, my response was amazement and love. And so I thought it was appropriate that we sing, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. Let's pray.
Our Father, we, we tremble and thinking about these things. There are mysteries here so deep. You allow us in your word to get a small glimpse into the deep mysteries of your plans before the foundation of the world and your secret counsel that would not be known to us unless you revealed it to us in your word. And yet, Lord, when we begin to think about these things, we, we tremble, and yet we also at times are baffled at how can this fit with other things we know about you and the world and ourselves Lord, we want to handle this topic so carefully. Oh, Lord, we do not want to misuse it, mistreat it, or cause in any way that you would be dishonored or that your glory would be diminished or that anyone would think ill of you or your plans. So help us, help each man and woman here through this week as, as we think about these things more. Lord, guide us into the truth. Guide us into an understanding of your wisdom. And then when we reach the limits of what you've told us and we can't probe any further and we don't know beyond that, Lord, then let us rest content that you are God. You are our creator. You are good. There is nothing evil in you. You are just. You are righteous. You are holy. You are beautiful. All your good, all your deeds, all your choices, all your decisions, all your wise counsels and your plans are wise and good. And we thank you. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that though we did not deserve you, we did not deserve to be reconciled to you, that you set your love on us before the foundation of the world and wrote our names in your book, and they are there forever, and we give you praise. Amen. See you next week.